and welcome back to another episode of the Practice Players Podcast. Today we're joined by Michael Weisenberg, who works with Pro Insight and uh, has been a big Hoops fan for a long time and worked in the industry. So it's great to have you on the uh, the podcast, Michael. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Great to meet you, uh, David and Nick, as well. So, Michael, if you wouldn't mind just sharing to the uh, to the audience uh, your life journey and your basketball journey and kind of how you've gotten to the position that you're in today. Yeah, I think a lot of it came from my time when I would come to visit Portland. My grandparents were both huge sports fans and just gravitated towards basketball. Got into it probably right around when the Dream Team, the original Dream Team, OG Dream Team, uh, came out. That's when I, I, I really started to love it. Uh, went to my first NBA game and in Portland and was hooked since. Um, and then, yeah, like just really started to to love it. And then um, I would write like, you know, lists and things like that. And then um, I was writing on a message board for uh, the website NBADraft.net. And um, I wrote a little event recap of something that was happening at the time called the Nike Global Challenge. It was happening in Hillsborough, Oregon. I was in Toronto, Ontario, which is where uh, I, I actually grew up in Toronto and spent time in Oregon, went to University of Oregon. Um, but yeah, I was in Toronto, wrote it. Um, the person who runs the website, NBADraft.net, noticed it, asked if he could put it on the site. I then asked if I could help out with the Hoop Summit, and uh, kind of the rest is history from there. I met a lot of my closest basketball connections at the Nike Hoop Summit, and um, it's where I met the person who runs Pro Insight, Matt McKay Jr. Um, he was a scout with the Portland Trailblazers and the Charlotte Hornets, and then he started a Pro Insight in um, summer 2018. And uh, I've been helping out Matt since around May 2019. And we, you know, mainly cover grassroots, um, cover college, the NBA draft, like, you know, stuff that we both uh, were very into. And um, yeah, like that, that's kind of been my focus for a really long time. I just, I became an NBA draft head, like um, probably around the 99, 2000 draft. I was just always fascinated with that process. So. Yeah, that that was really how I got into prospects and uh, grassroots college basketball, um, pro basketball, that kind of stuff. Yeah, speaking on the uh, dream team, well, obviously got you into basketball. We're just going to jump right into it. MJ or LeBron, who's your goat and why? <laughs> that is a good question. <laughs> I've had I've had this conversation a lot of times. I I think. When you look at Michael Jordan in comparison to, like, the players of his time, he was just absolutely absurd. Like, it wasn't even close. Uh, LeBron has a little bit more competition. I've always been a huge LeBron James fan, and I say he's the best basketball player I've ever seen. But just when you look at, like, you know, you take out those Wizards years, I guess, and then you look at, like, you know, just the, the dominance of Michael Jordan's career, it's so storybook. Um, and, and he was just so dominant and then had like incredibly dominant teams as well. So I, it's, I flip back and forth, but, uh, yeah, I'll say LeBron. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, Nick, Nick's up there cheesing. As soon as you said LeBron's your goat, that big old LeBron, smile came across LeBron, his face. 
have you seen the stuff he's been doing lately? <laughs> like, it's unreal, man. Like, I I love watching LeBron James play. I love what I got to watch Michael Jordan play. Like, it was really cool. Uh, but yeah, LeBron James. I, I'd say like with Michael Jordan, you had that individual and team success, and with LeBron, he hasn't necessarily had like you know the team construction around him that Michael Jordan had. Um, but it's been a really interesting story, man. Like, yeah, it's, it's been really cool. And then the longevity of it all is absolutely absurd. So, yeah. yeah, you got all three ends of the LeBron spectrum here. Nick loves him a little too much. Dan hates him a little too much. And then I equally like Jordan and LeBron. So we yeah. have a good diversity on I, the practice I'm, players. Pop. I'm with you, David, in that I think they're both like, to, to me, they're the two best. So, yeah. yeah. Not, not, I, I specifically am more siding with LeBron because I have never seen Jordan play. Like, I've seen highlights and everything, but I have never watched a full, like, Michael Jordan game. I've seen, you know, like, documentaries on the 92 Dream Team. I've seen documentaries on his 6-0 and championships, things of that nature. But, like, I've watched LeBron since I was like six years old and he was on the Cavs. Then I watched all the heat years then the Cavs years then the Lakers years. And he's been doing the same exact thing for 20 years straight. He has a scoring record that probably will never be broken. He has a minutes record that will probably never be touched. Like, and, and like, so when, cause I get into this argument with my teammates and friends all the time, is they like, well, well, Michael Jordan was six and oh, well, blah, 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 blah. And I was, my argument in that is like, well, Bill Russell won 11 times. Yeah. So, Robert what, Roy what's, seven. yeah. So, what's, <laughs> what's kind of the, and then, and then they say, well, he went and played baseball and then came back and won three straight. And I, I said, so, so he gets a, a cookie for being a dual sport athlete and not even the best dual sport athlete of all time. Deion Sanders did it. Bo Jackson did it. Like, what, you know what I mean? Right. Well, yeah. You can't you can't downplay that though. I was actually talking about this today with one of my boys. I'm like it like the only comparison you can make to that is if Mahomes left the Chiefs, went and started hooping in the NBA, came back in three years, and then won three more Super Bowls. Like it is absurd the fact that he won three, left to one third. You can't discredit that. Yeah, is, yeah. Is Mahomes right. shooting like 25 percent from the field though when he's hooping? <laughs> <laughs> nah, he, he might he might have to go to baseball too. I'm not gonna lie. He was he. I think he was a baseball guy, wasn't he? Was, he? Yeah. Was. Oh, big time. Yeah. That's yeah. that's how he does all the sidearm. His dad played for the Mets too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 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 but yeah. With with Mike, one thing I will say, Nick, like watch Michael Jordan play because like there were times he was shockingly dominant, and and it's like a very different style of play too. Like you look at the amount of shots Michael Jordan would take. Um, like, yeah, he was, he was a killer and it, it, it's just very, two very different styles of play. Um, but yeah, both dominant in their own ways for sure. The thing with, you know, and, and David had talked about how, how kind of we were on the three different spectrums of, of LeBron. It's mm-hmm. not that I hate LeBron because by any means I, I, I don't. They want to say that I hate LeBron. It's not that I hate LeBron because in terms of being a basketball player, I think he's the most complete player in NBA history. I've said this on this podcast. I'll say that again. The problem I have with LeBron is how he images himself. 
because he wants to earn people's respect when he's so unbelievably good that he doesn't need to. Like he cares so much about his image. And that's the problem that I think with LeBron is that he cares so much about what people think about him that he doesn't need to because he's already so good. That's that's the problem that I have with LeBron. It, it, What's the last not, dance, Daniel? Did I? Yeah, and I'm not going to sit yeah. here and say Michael Jordan doesn't do the same thing, but <laughs> but it's it's it just it bothers me because they they both do it, but I just LeBron to me does it more, and and, and I don't know about that one, bud. <laughs> all, all I got out of that is you just proved the point that you're a LeBron hater, but. Nick, I, you want to? Not hear the part where I say he's the most complete player of all time, and that I think he's unbelievably unstoppable. My you gave the, you gave the compliment sandwich. <laughs> My point with that is, we, we want to talk about how the Last Dance ironically came out right after LeBron won his fourth ring, and people started to say, "Oh, LeBron is really close, if not already there," and so he puts out the Last Dance to remind everybody of who he was. And now they're, all the MJ fans come out of the woodworks after LeBron wins the Mickey Mouse ring, bubble ring that nobody wants to give credit for. Nick. But, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I, didn't the last dance come out before LeBron won his fourth? It was, it was either before the Lakers or before the Cavs won that he won. It, it, was, it, was, it was definitely before. like – It was before, it, it was, um, before the Lakers won the fourth. It was yeah. during COVID yeah. that we were watching right. it. So it was, it was before. Before, Yeah, and the Lakers won it. Like, yeah. Like, the last dance came out, like, yeah, like, at a perfect time where, like, I everybody's in the house. Nick, that that's um, kind of fair. That that's yeah. the reason that you're saying that the documentary came out um, yeah. in defense to Michael Jordan. I don't think that yeah. that's the reason he dropped the documentary was yeah. to prove that he was better than LeBron. I mean, I, like, the whole Michael Jordan, like, I, I, like, I don't want to get too political here, but the whole Michael Jordan, like, Republicans buy shoes too, kind of thing, and like I don't know if you guys saw like the Jesse yeah. Helms part of uh, the documentary where he's like, "Well, I, you know, uh, donated to like this other guy's campaign, and like you know, Jesse Helms like hated black people and was like a horrible racist, but you know, I couldn't speak out." Um, so yeah, I don't know. Certain, certainly, like they were, they're both incredibly image conscious, which. I think if you're at that level, you, you probably become a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Let, let's let's talk about them as basketball players and uh, not get too deep into the weeds there. <laughs> um. So I have a question for you, not not related to LeBron or Michael Jordan, just yeah. kind of what you do. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. These debates can go on forever. That's yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. What are um What are a few things that you look at when you are scouting a player, whether it be high school, college? What do you look for? Yeah, I, I would say I love the NBA draft, and I, I kind of love you know projecting people to that level. So I, I usually look for the things you can obviously see when you, especially when you're live scouting somebody. You look to see their positional size. You look to see their athleticism. Now, by athleticism, too, like, I I don't know if you guys listen to the Thinking Basketball podcast at all, but great podcast. They talked about it, and the level, like, how one defines athleticism, I think it it's just, it's a lot broader than 
you know, most people, they, most people would think how fast you are, how high you jump. It like when people say that Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, like weren't great athletes, like their hand-eye coordination, um, like I, I've written some stuff down. Yeah. Hand-eye coordination, the quickness of your hands and feet, your lateral quickness, um, I, I think those are all things like in, even like pattern recognition, um, which gets into my last thing. I, I like to see how they process the game, like, you know, just in their role, you know, what do they, they do? Um, how's their feel. And that kind of means like quick decision-making awareness, um, your positioning on the court. And then of course your skill level. So yeah, like those are the things that I, I tend to look for. So if a person's like an off ball player, like, do they know who they are? Um, can they shoot off of movement? Um, do they, you know, make quick passes? Do they, are they not ball stoppers? Uh, stuff like that. Yeah. And then of course, defensive awareness and like, you know, ability to guard multiple positions is always a great thing. Um but yeah, I, I actually like w one thing I send people all the time is I did um, a I, I you know Daniel and I actually met at the Pro Insight Blueprint and we were doing the BAM testing and so I, I've always kind of been fascinated mostly by um, the positional height and like averages and you know some teams may not have been the tallest but they had guys with like absurd length like you look at those Michael Jordan teams. And Scottie Pippen had, like, an insane wingspan. Michael Jordan had, like, a plus-plus wingspan, too. Um, Dennis Rodman, I think, probably had one of, like, like absolutely crazy uh, for his ability to, you know, guard up the lineup. Um, so, yeah, like, they may not have been the tallest, even though Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, obviously, were very tall, but Dennis Rodman. But they had the, a lot of length to them. So one thing I, I like to, you know, send people is uh, I have a list of positional averages in the NBA. Um, so I took like 15 of the best players just to give an idea of, you know, height, weight, wingspan, standing reach, just so you kind of have a gauge. I, I actually, I think I, I sent that to you, Daniel. So you have a gauge to know, like, you know, what is really good positional size in the NBA? Because I, I think a lot of pe times people will say, oh, he's really big. When in actuality, they're pretty average by NBA standards. Yeah, I think a good yeah, bouncing back. Oh, I was just saying, I think a good example of that. You know, we we we've seen the Stephen A. Smith like meme clip of how Kwame Brown has small hands, but he was mm -hmm. you know foot and tall. But is he big? I mean, his small hands can he like catch the ball? Like this, that's kind of something that I noticed. A good example to use for that too, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, like hand size is something that th there's a reason they measure in the combine. Um, yeah, it, well, you know, the funny part with that too is Michael Jordan was a person that like obsessed over hand size because he had massive hands. He loved when people could palm a basketball and he would look for that like in draft prospects, I, I feel like afterwards, after that whole Kwame Brown thing. Um, I don't know if you guys, you, you guys are all youngins, so... One of the things with Kwame Brown, Kwame Brown actually wasn't even the top rated player in that high school class. Like he was near the top, but I think one of the things that happened was um, 
he had a draft workout against Tyson Chandler, who was the person that went second in the draft. And they sent like a limo to pick up Tyson Chandler. They didn't send anything for Kwame. Kwame shows up angry. I heard gets the better of Tyson Chandler. Mike was there. I heard that was like a huge reason that he ended up going number one. But yeah, I, if you, you look at positional size and, and some of those factors, maybe then you look at Tyson a little bit more. Um, so you talked about your history with Oregon. You know, you said you went to a university of Oregon. You, you, you know, you spent some time there. Um, give me like your favorite, you know, Oregon duck sports memory. All right. I am a huge Oregon football fan. So I actually got to go to the 2001 Fiesta Bowl, which was Joey Harrington. That was kind of like Oregon got a little bit shafted that year. They thought they had a chance to play Miami in the national championship, went to Nebraska, who had gotten killed by Colorado. Oregon ends up killing Colorado. It was great, um, but finished second in the nation that year. And then I, I did get a chance to go to the championship game in um, 2010 against Auburn, uh, which was like, you know, something I never thought Oregon would get to. And they ended up getting to it again. Didn't go to that second one. Uh, the Auburn game was at least really close. But I have three basketball games I kind of wanted to bring up to you guys that are, are just incredible Oregon memories. Um, I, I looked them all up. So... Uh, January 6th, 2007, I'm sitting on the side where Aaron Brooks makes the game-winning shot against UCLA. They win 68-66. UCLA at the time was the number one team in the nation. They had Aaron Aflalo, Darren Collison, Luke Richard and Bob Mute, and a freshman Russell Westbrook coming off the bench. Um, it was a court storming. Like, it was incredible. Oregon ends up going to the Elite Eight that year. Another one that is just a special memory for me was uh, my brother had a bachelor party and we decided to go to the Oregon, Arizona game. And this was February 4th, 2017. Oregon in the first half is 11 of 13 from three. So the, the one of the mini storylines there is Arizona had recruited Tyler Dorsey. He had committed there. And then they kind of went around him and got a guy by the name of Alonzo Trier. And in this game, Tyler was letting them know it. He led the game in scoring. He had 23. Um, Dylan Brooks was great. Chris Boucher was great. Uh, Dylan Ennis played some spectacular defense on Lowry Markinen, who was held to four points. Um, it was an 85-58 throwdown, and uh, yeah, it was just, Oregon ended up going to the Final Four that year. Chris Boucher, unfortunately, got hurt in the conference tournament. Um, they lost to North Carolina by one point when Jordan Bell didn't box out twice on a free throw, and North Carolina kept gaining extra possessions. Um, but yeah, that was an incredible one. And then I got to go to a road game that uh, was... I think known as like the Peyton Pritchard Chandler Lawson game. Chandler Lawson, his best game is a duck by far. I think he had like 18 points and 12 rebounds. Oregon was down 18 in the second half to University of Washington. 
that had Isaiah Stewart and Jane McDaniels. Um, and they end up coming back, sending it to overtime. Peyton Pritchard makes a three from like the W. Um, he was six of 12 from three on the game. And then he makes this three to put them up, goes, this is my house. And, uh, it was a 64, 61 Oregon win, uh, on the road. I took a picture of myself after he hit that three and you see, it was a live picture. You can see all the disappointed Washington fans in the background. <laughs> it's, it was, uh. It was a great moment, and and Peyton Pritchard as a senior was just like really in his bag. It was just such a bummer. He uh, it ended like COVID ended um, their NCAA hopes that year, and, uh, and Peyton Pritchard was like maybe two or three games away from two thousand points. Like, yeah, it was it was a, a real downer. Oregon was actually supposed to play their first game in the Pac twelve tournament um, right when COVID like happened. I, I had friends who were like there, supposed to be going to the tournament, and then like everything was shut down that March twelfth. Yeah, my favorite game of a recent memory for Oregon is about two weeks ago taking down a TTUN, the Jackson Shellstead uh, legacy game. <laughs> yeah, that that was unbelievable. Congratulations on the Emerald Coast Classic, by the way. You you guys got the job done. And then, yes, uh, Nick, I wanted to say congratulations to you guys beating Creighton yesterday. Yeah, That's that was a big. Time. That was a big win. Big, big, big win. Yeah. No, we had no no faith. Like nobody had any faith in us. It was like I don't know if you guys saw. Like CBS was publicizing the Creighton Alabama game on this Saturday. Just like no public, like no public, um, publicizing our game whatsoever. And then, you know, we – I don't want to say handled them, but, man, I'll we played say, great. I'll say. Y'all handled them. Yeah. I, I watched the entire game, and it was very apparent after the, the first 10 minutes that Khalid was going to have a great game. And he kind of was just going at Kolkbrenner, who's a fantastic seven-foot big for Creighton, who's one of the best in the country. But it seemed like Khalid just didn't really care. And despite the size difference, he still used his – good post moves yeah. but i think uh, it was great i mean played really well I, like we could also talk about dj being an 18 year old point guard i think like if he stays in college for the next few years he could be one of the best point guards in the country in the next two years yeah. but i don't even know if he'll be in college for the next two years i mean he could be in the draft in a year or two in my opinion he's i mean undersized but so quick and so like his court vision is second to none for a kid his age. Was in uh, Vegas um, a couple months ago and um, got to uh, kind of tour around UNLV and uh, d actually showed us around. So it was really cool. Yeah, uh, he's a good kid. I played against uh, my, my guy, uh, Matt, in uh, in ping pong. And oh. uh, yeah, it was a great time. Yeah, <laughs> using his offhand too. So yeah, he uh, he's man. It like we, we've known about Didon for a long time, and uh, yeah, just great to see him doing so well. Like after reclassifying. Yeah, the interesting thing with Creighton to me, I've watched a few of their games now. I wonder how much they're going to miss Nemhard because with all the shooting and three point 
shots that they take, I feel like they're missing that true lead point guard to help generate those looks. And it was apparent in that UNLV game. So I wonder if, you know, getting into Marquette, UConn, Big East play, I think that might be a serious problem. Yeah, I don't know if you like you saw they handed like the keys to um the point guard from Utah State who we saw yeah yeah Ashworth we saw him twice last year he's a great player but they actually like he didn't even play the ending few minutes of the game he didn't even score a field goal the whole game like we had kind of shut him down and um he like didn't even play the last six minutes of the game like he like they didn't even have a true point guard in trying to get them good looks like yeah it was, was interesting those, yeah I, and I thought that was interesting too I didn't even notice it our, our coaching staff said it at the when we were watching film this morning and they said I don't know if you guys noticed but he didn't even play the last six to eight minutes of the game and I like wow there's no way that your starting point guard you know who you hand the keys to so yeah, I thought that was wild. interesting that's wild and uh just talking about basketball in general, in your opinion, how do you feel about the current state of where the game's going? You sort of already touched on it with a lot more length, and then we just touched on it now with shooting. Yeah, I I think that basketball is in a, a pretty good place, obviously. I, like, I, I feel like the TV contracts are, are coming in, and they're going to look pretty positive. Um, I think how global it's gotten is, is incredible. Like, you know, look at the top of the NBA right now and how many players are, are from outside of the United States. Obviously I, I think they're trying to focus a lot on, on player development and um, just skill work in the U S um, I think college basketball has gotten so much more interesting. Like it, it's just a completely new landscape. And I, I don't know. I've always been pretty big on player empowerment. So I, I, I like that. Um, one thing I, I'd like to see, like th- this was actually something JJ Redick was was bringing up when he was talking about how, um, you know, people use uh, like uh, the gather step and how at lower levels, they don't allow you to use the same gather step as they would in like FIBA and um, in the NBA. Like there should be kind of like a concrete rule set. Um, I, I'd like to see the NBA... Even the NBA used like a couple kind of uh, FIBA rules. Like one rule that I, I know obviously a lot of people want to ban the charge um, because it's like gets people hurt and uh, is kind of a ridiculous play. I, I think there has to be something done in terms of like just defense in general, uh, making it maybe a little bit easier to play. Like maybe, you know, bringing back like the arm bar in the post or like bringing back some of that physicality. Um, just like the offensive ratings right now are like insane. Uh, so yeah, like giving something where the defense has at least like somewhat of an advantage. One thing I have always kind of, um, been an advocate for, I hate the offensive goaltending rule. I think it's ridiculous. I love the FIBA rule where as soon as it's on the rim, it's live. I think that would be so much better and so much more interesting. Um, and it, it, for the defense, it w- works out as well because as soon as it's on the rim, they can, you know, tip it or grab it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's something I, I'd like to see. Um, so, yeah, like just bringing kind of that more universal rule set so people are maybe 
like you see the international players, I think because they play with FIBA rules might be a, a little bit more ready for like that pro level. Um, at least the, the kind of rule change dynamic than, uh, you know, some of the players going from high school to college to the NBA. Yeah. Touching back on the, uh, defensive point you made, I'm definitely a diehard Nick fan, but more of a college stand than NBA these days. And one thing that I love is, you know, the NBA has the defensive three in the key rule and in college mm-hmm. you don't. And I feel yep. like a lot of it to do with the NBA, they want speed up the game, space the floor, more scoring, more entertaining for the fans because it's all a business. Whereas in college, you have, you know, these large universities, they don't necessarily need to make all their money from TV revenue like Ohio State. You know, you got football, you got tuition. So it sort of slows the game down. You know, you know, the Big Ten grit and grind. And that's where I think a lot of the pure basketball is still left because you can feed it into your Zach Edies and play through the post. You can have him, you know, stand in the rim and do the Bill Lambeer. You want to come in my paint and get hit, do it. So that's Mm -hmm. why I sort of like that. But yeah, universal rule set, maybe across like all pro levels have this and then all amateur levels have this could definitely clear up a lot of confusion in some areas. Yeah. 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 And I, I don't know. The NBA has always kind of had like an illegal defense. Like it used to be where you couldn't double team somebody off the ball. So that was, you know, the big thing, like, to kind of force, you couldn't play a zone at all, really. Um, now in the NBA, you obviously can play a zone. I think the defensive three, that's an interesting one because, yeah, like, they are the only league that really does that. Um, yeah. And I, I do think, you know, it just kind of opens up the lane and kind of, like, makes it so you don't have a big guy just, like, clogging it and protecting the rim. Um, so it gives a little bit of freedom of movement, but yeah, I don't know. It, I I think if there was no illegal defense, like I, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That that, that could be uh, something to look into also. Yeah, I feel like in regards to like us who are like basketball heads and we understand it all, like it's it would make sense for the NBA to take the defensive three out. But as a like for them just wanting ratings, I mean, think about John Morant doesn't jump up and like throw in a 360 dunk if he sees, you know, Brooke Lopez standing in the yeah. thing for 10 seconds just waiting mm-hmm. for him at the rim. But but they want they want John Morant to go 360 dunk it because that's what people watch. Like people want to see that. Nobody wants to see John Morant get clobbered by Brooke Lopez, like mm-hmm. uh, besides us, like we want to see that. Nobody yeah. wants to like if yeah. you're if you're not a basketball head, you want to see John Morant do that. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely not a strategy based rules. Like you said, Nick, just viewership, more highlights, more offense scoring. No one wants to sit through and watch a Tom Thibodeau Knicks team win eighty six to eighty one, unless you're a sicko like me. Going <laughs> yeah. like you know, with Michael Jordan in the old defensive rules, like they definitely I think helped him out as well. Like. uh yeah, you couldn't really double team Michael Jordan. You couldn't really, you know, get the court and uh, have it like I, the the big thing. A lot of people in the Jordan like LeBron debate talk about um, is the 2011 NBA Finals, and the Mavericks did a masterful job of stacking the defense over towards LeBron's side of the court. Whereas I think you saw, or if you look at the statistics, 
Dwayne Wade had a great series. Well, they didn't care as much about Dwayne Wade scoring. They cared about what LeBron was going to do. Um, so, yeah, they did an incredible job there. Um, but, yeah, like the defensive rules allowed them to do that, whereas Michael Jordan wouldn't have had those same defensive rules that, you know, and I think the Bulls' offense, therefore, could, you know, really kind of uh, stack things where Michael would be, you know, in an isolation situation quite a bit. Um, not to mention that they had the triangle and uh, had a lot of shooting around him. Very good stuff. Yeah. Phil Jackson was an absolute genius. Tex Winter was uh, the assistant coach who was kind of the architect behind the triangle system. Yeah. Really good yeah, stuff. Phil Jackson, Phil Jackson was a genius until he decided to uh, ruin my Knicks for another few years. Well, yeah, it wasn't very good in the front too. office department. Hard to be a genius forever, David. Hard yeah. to be a genius forever. What do you what do you think of Larry Brown too? <laughs> you, you've had a couple of classic coaches that uh d- didn't have the best uh time with the New York Knicks. Yes, it's been painful, but I yeah. think our savior wearing the double ones, he's here. Take us to the promised land. Yeah, Mike. Michael, I don't know how much of our podcast you've listened to, but if you go through episodes, you'll notice that David is has a forbidden love for Jalen Brunson, and he's not, you know, afraid to show that. Jalen so. Brunson's fantastic. Yeah, I got, I, I got. He was a guy that I got to see at uh, Nike Global Challenge in 2014, and like, was great. So good. That he's he, one of those guys. They had De'Aaron Fox. They had like Malik Monk, Bam Adebayo, Jalen Brown. Jalen Brunson probably played the best out of any of them. It goes back to your definition you said earlier of how do you define athleticism? And, you know, it goes beyond, you know, just pure jumping or whatever. I mean, Dan's laughing. If you watch Jalen Brunson, his footwork is one of, if not the best in the NBA, his body positioning, his IQ, his dribble pickups, like he makes athletic moves. You just wouldn't expect it because, you know, he's a bulky or undersized point guard. No, I wasn't laughing. At, I wasn't yeah. laughing at you calling Jalen Brunson athletic. I was laughing because I figured you'd say something like, "Oh, he's the most athletic player of all time." I was just waiting for it. So I'm actually surprised you didn't say that. That's why. No, that's that's, Jer- that's Jericho Sims. He's the most athletic that's, player of all time. That's why I was talking. That's not, no. Jalen Brunson's a very athletic player. Yeah. I mean, we want to talk. His footwork for a guard is second to none. His post moves for being how tall is he? Six one, six two. Yeah, somewhere right like, there. For, for having footwork and post moves like he does is like undersized guards should watch him, watch film on him and learn Absolutely. to be like him. Absolutely. Yeah. Michael, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on early. If you want Jalen Brunson 2.0, Bruce Thornton. Bruce Thornton. Okay. Trust just Good stuff. Be early. Be buy stock now. As John Ross. Buy, buy stock now. I've known about Bruce for a while, but yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I'm glad buy you're stock stoked now. on your guy. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely going to be watching. He and he better be Jalen Brunson, David. Uh, I'll be very well, disappointed. My my little insight: Bruce and I are really close, and over this summer, I literally, after like the playoffs, harped on him. Like, I don't care like what you do this summer when you go back home to your trainers. I'm sending you a synergy Jalen Brunson package, and you're putting his moves into your bag. And I basically Love just force fed it until he did it, just to shut me up. And that's like his player comp now. We're always talking about Brunson. I'm making him watch highlights, do the signature three celebration, bringing it out. Because the, the comps are there. The measurables are there. Um, 
did you guys see the little video that was going around of Fred Van Vliet talking about what it takes to be a smaller guard in the NBA now? I think I remember watching that. He yeah. he was talking about a little bit. I love it. I, so I think defending like full court, just kind of going all out there, um, obviously making shots and just toughness. What I always tell guys, like, you know, if you go to these camps, um, like you may not get the ball, but you have to do other things. You have to do other things. Like winning is doing all those little things and being a small player in the NBA, it's doing that. Um, it's getting steals. It's making shots at a high percentage. It's just like being like that Jose Alvarado, Freddie Van Vliet, you know, like right now. Yeah. The, the other thing, uh, if you go to NBA.com right now and look at players by height, there are, I think 11 or 12 players in the NBA who are six, one or under. It's that's out of about 500 players. So yeah, it's, you have to be really special and really focus on those things. That, that's why I'm saying, because there are tons of those players that people talk about as draft prospects. Only a few are going to make it. I always make a point to try and tell my teammates, like, if you look at guys in the NBA who like played at high level programs, I like my example is Jared Vanderbilt. And I know he's six, nine freakishly long arms, but he, he averaged like seven points per game in, in college. Like, but he can guard one through five, pick up full court. He, I mean, he did so against the greatest shooter of all time in Steph Curry for six games or however many games that series was, whatever. If you can guard, like you're going to play at whatever program you're at and you can only improve offensively, like, through workouts, through things like that. But if you can guard, especially at 17, 18 years old, the sky's the limit. Like however good you want to be is however good you're going to be. Well, I think defensive we, versatility is super important. Yeah. Sorry, Daniel. Defensive versatility is super important. But the other thing Jared did really well, he was a fantastic rebounder, especially like the offensive rebounding numbers. I remember in Kentucky were great. And then he was a really good passer too. And he could handle the ball a bit. So he had all of that in his skill set, along with the fact that, you know, he had that uh, defensive versatility. What I was going to add with with a player like Jared Vanderbilt is now, because we were talking about it earlier, how efficiently offense is getting, like how, like, for example, the Indiana Pacers, who we'll talk about in a second, their numbers Mm -hmm. with Tyrese Halliburton are just exponentially high. And these teams are so offensive oriented that it makes those defensive gems even more valuable. Like these guys mm-hmm. like Jared Vanderbilt are going to get sought after, are going to be sought after and are going to get big contracts because teams need guys to limit these shooters and playmakers as best as they can. Like teams need a guy to go out and uh, ruffle the feathers of Tyrese Halliburton because if they don't, he's going to get 25 and 12 on, and with great efficiency and have maybe one or two turnovers and you can't do anything about it. But if you you know sign a guy like Jared Vanderbilt, pay him 2 or $3 million more than you probably should, that investment will probably be worth it because you're getting a guy who would be able to stop that. So I think just with the way the let the league's heading right now, it's just so offense oriented. And we'll talk about a few of the teams that have had terrific starts and a few of the teams that haven't. And I think offensive efficiency has done Indiana really well, who we'll talk about. Yeah. And, and 
if all the teams that I think we'll talk about, they probably have a Jared Vanderbilt like like player on those teams too. Yeah. Well, yeah, I feel like we can get right into it right now. I mean, you talk about Minnesota. McDaniels can guard one through five. Mm-hmm. Any player you put like and they what are, are they might have the best record in the NBA right they, now. They do. So they Minnesota's do. first in the West yeah. right now at seventeen and five. And their defense they, they have that player. They have Rudy Gobert. Like yeah. two two players that could be in for a defensive player of the year on the same team with Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns and a veteran leader point guard in Mike Conley. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that that team hasn't made it farther thus far, but I think that they're like hitting a very good stride um, as a team. I, yeah, I think, I, I think part of it, yeah, sorry. Part of it was, I, I think injuries and uh, I, I think Rudy Gobert kind of working into things last year. Uh, but yeah, Rudy Gobert is back to like his defensive player of the year self. A guy who I love is a complimentary piece for them is Kyle Anderson. I just think he could do a little bit of everything too. Um, so yeah, I, I thought Kyle was a great fit with that team and um, really coming through this year as well. Uh, their starting lineup is so good, man. Like, yeah, it's just, it's working really well together. Uh, the fact that they can, you know, stagger Cat and um, and Rudy Gobert at times too, and then you know have the offensive firepower of an Anthony Edwards. Um, yeah, like I, this is exactly what uh, Tim Connolly was was trying to make, like this regular season juggernaut. And uh, we'll see if they maintain that health and can do it in the playoffs. As you know, Rudy Gobert has always been kind of uh, hit upon, but. Um, I don't think he's ever had a defense like this. So it's going to be really interesting. I, I just think that they're with Nas Reed off the bench as somebody who we didn't talk about mm-hmm. is so important for them too, because this team's so unique. They have three really good bigs and there are some teams in the league who don't have a single good big or a single good big in terms of the grand scheme of the NBA. They have three and what they're able to do to put two bigs on the court for 35 plus minutes every single night that are really, really good 40 plus minutes, if you want, is extremely valuable because they weren't able the first couple of years, they had to work Rudy Gobert in. And that's difficult when you have a seven foot shot blocker who can't make a shot outside of 12 feet. You have to work on floor spacing. You have to find ways for Cat to get his post touches with Rudy Gobert, maybe standing on the opposite dunker spot. You have to find ways for your, for your scores to score with a guy like Rudy Gobert clogging up the paint, but they finally found this balance where they're able to stretch out Jane McDaniels in an opposite corner and he can hit a catch and shoot three. You can have Cat in a post up. You can have a pick and pop game because Cat's a good three point shooter. You can have Mike Conley orchestrate the offense, Edwards orchestrate the offense, even Kyle Anderson, who Mike, Michael, you talked about, he's terrific. He can play the two through four and he has a great pace to the game. Like they're just really sound. They're just a good sound team and they're, winning games and and they have a good coaching staff and they're just a team that I think we should keep continuing to keep our eye out for because they could really end up being as crazy as it sounds the number one seed in the western conference injuries is really what's holding them back because I mean they're they're a deep team I mean Nas Reed and Kyle Anderson both coming off the bench they're a team that I I think we should watch out for um, I did want to get your guys' opinions, more you guys than mine, because mine's going to be more bias on Oklahoma City. Uh, I'm not going to talk about them much because I've talked about them a lot. But, David, what are your thoughts on them as they are right now number two in the West, just two games back in Minnesota? 
Well, I'm glad you're uh, dishing it off so we don't need to hear you talk about the Thunder anymore. But no, I mean, I've been on the shade train since like Kentucky. I've always thought he had that special gear. And the narrative that I'm seeing now is Shea's finally playing defense. Shea's guarding. That's why the Thunder are a lot better. But Shea's always been able to guard. And I feel like once you give him those complimentary pieces, Jalen Williams on the wing who can guard, orchestrate his own offense, then I think the missing piece for them, as much as you know, I was anti against, not as much anti against it, but not as high as you and Nick, is Chet. I mean, he's as advertised and then some. He's protecting the rim at an absurd rate. You know, his so-called size, like we were talking about earlier, doesn't really affect him because he has that length we were alluding to. He's able to knock down shots. So I, the Thunder are legit, and they're going to be a problem for a while. I love him. I, I just, like, the entire um, way they work together, I, I think it's so good. They have, like, strange positional size, but they really have it. Um, I think Chet is, like, fantastic. I, I I was always pretty high on Chet. Um, I initially liked Paulo over him, but I was kind of going a little bit back and forth. Um, he's a dog. Like, he's always been a dog. He, like, super competitive. Um, you know, like, getting to see him go up against Evan Mobley at USA Basketball and him going, like, crazy, like, oh, my God, I almost had that block shot. Like, I was, like, trying to talk to him afterwards, but he was so zoned in to what had just happened and, and uh, you know, really wanted that in the game. Um, shooting absurdly well. Uh, which not surprising. Like he's always had great touch. Um, yeah, I, like Chet Holmgren, I think is an incredible compliment to Shea. Is somebody who can play off another big or and loves being the center. That's the other thing too. Like and good at scoring inside, but you know has that crazy shooting touch. Um, yeah, I, I I think he's like. The, I'm not surprised they're winning a lot of games. I'm surprised they're second in the Western Conference. Um, Jalen Williams is fantastic as well. And then Shea is just such a star, man. Like, I think he's he's probably been the best guard in the league so far. I don't know if that's, like, a hot take, but, like, I think he's, like, clearly first-team All-NBA level again. And, um, yeah, then, you know, you – like a guy I love off the bench for them is Isaiah Joe. He's such a great shooter. Um, Kaysen Wallace was a great find in the draft too. He, you know, he's able to get in there with that starting unit where they can basically play like four guards in a big, like, cause Jalen Williams can play whatever Josh Giddy has size to play whatever for as long as he's playing. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, they're a great team. All right, Michael, I want to give a little, uh, picker will do here with no explanation since you obviously big chet guy i'm gonna give you chet and another player to build around and you just name which one you're gonna pick i feel like this will be a good, good little instagram reel okay. we'll chop up and post and then dan nick obviously if you have so chet holmgren or paula i'm going with chat all right this can be the juicy one you ready yeah you, you can break this down a little bit more if you want cool Chet or Victor? Who are you taking next 10 years? I am taking Chet this year as rookie of the year. I think Chet's rookie of the year. 
I will take Victor Wembanyama because I think that mystery box is incredible. I think it's yes. so good. I just I, that was a thing when we got to bad teams. I I want to talk about the Spurs because I think Victor is so fascinating. Um, but yeah, the Spurs it's it's an interesting team this year, man. Like I thought they would be a lot better, and I like obviously you know they want to build around Victor. But yeah, like it's just why is Victor trying to be Kevin Durant when he could be like Giannis that can shoot? You know, like that's the thing that I, I'm I'm a little surprised by. But yeah, I, as much as I loved, I, like I think Chet versus Victor is going to be like the coolest matchup over the next little while, man. It's interesting okay, to me. I'll, to I'll, see... I'll go with Vic. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll go with Vic long term. It's interesting to me to see where San Antonio over the next, you know, three to five years is going to go. Cause you know, Sohan, uh, Devin Vassell, Malachi Branham, you know, they have quality young pieces around Victor, but I wonder if inevitably it's just going to turn into, do they wait and try to draft a second star? Or are those guys going to get packaged up and trade for maybe one of these young stars who asks out? Cause it always happens. Cause to me, I feel like he needs that, guard piece next to him and i don't think that's currently on the spurs roster yeah I no, I mean, they've had lineups where they've been running jeremy sohan at the one and with yeah, all due like, respect that's not going to get victor Wimbanyama the looks that he deserves to get from a player that's playing the point guard position yeah and and no, it, it doesn't make sense no and, I, and i'm a huge check guy obviously because i'm a thunder fan but i'd agree with your answer michael like if i'm the thunder or if I'm me, of course I'd switch out Victor Wimignana for Chet Holmgren. I think I agree that mystery box is incredible, but I don't think that Victor Wimbanyama can reach his ceiling until he gets a guard that can help him. And right now he just doesn't have that. Um, a team that I wanted to talk about that hasn't gotten off to a good start yet, and I want to know your guys' opinions on it, and I'll share mine as well, um, are the Golden State Warriors. They're 11th currently in the Western Conference. They traded for Chris Paul. He has missed a few games this season with injury, but do we think it's time? or it, it Has the clock struck midnight and this is it for them and they're done? Or do we think this is just a rough slump start for the season for them? I think I'll it's go a little first. I'll, I can oh, answer. Go I'll go yeah. first. I think, and like obviously being a LeBron fan, I've seen, you know, this Warriors dynasty kind of take control of LeBron and hold LeBron from getting a few more rings. But I think as of right now, I mean, we have Draymond Green punching people in the face on regular nights. Like Clay Thompson looks visibly frustrated. Like Clay Thompson, I saw one of these games that they were down three, needed a three. They had Clay Thompson sitting on the bench and Andrew Wiggins sitting on the bench for needing a three to tie the game up with, you know, nine seconds left or something. Obviously, you know, you want Steph to shoot that shot, but to not even have Klay Thompson and Andrew Wiggins on the floor, like I think the whole team is just kind of discombobulated right now. Um, and I think I think Steph is just frustrated because obviously, I, I mean, you don't have the same Clay that, you know, you had after two, you know, knee problems. And then I don't know what happened, what has happened with Andrew Wiggins. I mean, when they won that title, he was, you know, arguably their third, second or third best player. When did they win? 2022 against the Celtics. Yeah. Um, and then just like, just has not played up to his, like up to how he's normally played. I just think it's 
all going bad there. Well, one thing I will say about Andrew Wiggins in 2022, he was in a contract year. I think that certainly was motivation. Um, I think the Warriors have gotten older and, you know, that was bound to happen. Um, yeah, the, the, the two different timelines thing was, I think, a really tough sell. And, you know, I, I think you could go back and look at James Wiseman pick. And, you know, I obviously you had like, uh, uh, Franz Wagner, like the pick after Jonathan Kaminga as well. Like, you know, they not all gems, but I, I, I think that like Steph Curry is still the same guy. And, you know, like his peak has been so fascinating and like, you know, it happened and like, he's just an all timer. Um, but everybody else is, is fallen off. I think, I think quite a bit. And, um, so yeah, it's really tough. A lot of the teams in the NBA also are enormous and the, the Warriors positionless lineups, I don't think you know, scare them. And I, I don't think they're as much of a death lineup as they used to be. Um, but it, it, and then the other thing is like the warrior success has largely been driven off of, of Steph, of course, but like it was Steph and Draymond and Draymond missing time. I doubt helped. Um, Draymond missing more time time. I'm doubting it will help either. Um, do you remember, like, I feel like during the Kevin Durant, uh, time when he wasn't playing, the Draymond and Steph record was like something completely absurd, like eighty-eight percent winning percentage, like absolutely insane. So it, it's largely, I think, built off of those two. Uh, but yeah, Clay Thompson is is certainly like you know, I, I would say a fraction of what he used to be. Um, still a good shooter, but not the same level of shooter, not the same level of defender, um, not the same level of offensive threat. Um, Andrew Wiggins has really struggled this year. Like his shooting's kind of fallen off and just not the same. Remember rebounding Wiggins against the Celtics in the finals? (laughs) He said that was going to keep happening. It it hasn't really been happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. I like, I'm guessing they'll try and move Chris Paul. I don't think he's been like the issue. And I, I think he like more than likely helps their bench unit, but yeah, they're just, uh, I think it's, it's not the same team it used to be. I, I think uh, a lot of the complimentary pieces um, also, you know, aren't really there anymore. And uh, I think those were kind of underrated in uh, their whole run as well. Yeah, and then one last team to are approaching up on a hour here. I want to get to before we end it is the Los Angeles Clippers. I was a huge, huge fan of the Harden trade after seeing the first, you know, couple game results. I think they lost what like six, seven in a row. A lot of people were clowning them. But at the time of this recording, they've won five in a row. They're playing the Warriors now. And to me, I think Harden might be the primary ball handling piece that's been missing next to Paul George and Kawhi. I went back and looked. He's taking the least amount of shots, only 10 a game so far this season. It's the least amount of shots in his career since his Thunder days. They're using him a lot in, you know, that middle third pick and roll with Zubak. 
letting PG and Kawhi go on the wings and sort of play off Harden and Reed, you know, backdoor cut, you know, bump up, get the open shot. I think Harden is making Kawhi and Paul George's life immensely easier. And I think the Clippers could give anyone in the West a run in a seven-game series to make the finals. I, I completely agree. I and, and when the James Harden trade happened, I know a lot of people were, it's not going to work. There's three, four guys who need the basketball. It's not going to work. But James Harden is helping Kawhi Leonard and Paul George because he's taking so much pressure off of them, right? Like like this, And he's not shooting. He's not shooting. and He's, he's being a willing passer. This is a guy who's led the league in assists before, and James Harden with Philadelphia. Like, this is a willing passer. People don't think that that's true. He's a willing passer. He's great uh, as the dimer on a pick and roll. He throw it up to Zubac. He can hit it in the corner, whether it's PG or Kawhi there. And I also feel like Russ coming off the bench is so huge for them too because they're able to put in Terrence Mann in that starting lineup who's able to play defense, and that's all he has to worry about because there's four other guys on the court who can score, right? Like he'll, he'll hit his catch and shoot three. He'll do what he has to do. But for Russ to be able to say, okay, I'll take the back seat. I'll come off the bench. That's huge for the Clippers. That gives them somebody off the bench who they don't have to play 24 plus minutes and they don't have to play those four guys on the court at the same time. But James Harden's ability to see the floor, to control the pace of the game and to do it in a positive way for his team is something that we haven't seen yet. And I think that if they can connect the pieces, they could make the the NBA Finals. They have the talent, too. It's just a matter of whether everybody will will buy in for them. And health. And health. Health, yeah. That's that's the big thing with them, is staying healthy. Um, But, yeah, Harden is an incredible passer. Like, I always said he's, like, just an objectively awesome basketball player um, who – it's really fun to see what happens in the playoffs because, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's always an adventure. <laughs> but, the yeah, Clippers it, get the, yeah. The Clippers, it's just all about staying healthy because yeah. they, they're a really, really talented team. If the Clippers get this James Harden not hunting his own shot and embracing being the primary facilitator, setting up others and, you know, not caring if he takes nine attempts a game because he knows, you know, he still has the ball in his hands and he's setting up others. That's going to be a scary sight to see. And also shout out Kobe Brown, the rookie from Missouri. I think he's another valuable bench piece going back to that defensive versatility we were talking about. He's long, high motor, can play well. So just want to get a little rookie shout out there. Word. Can, oh. we, can we talk about the Spurs for just a second? Yeah. 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 So Absolutely. I – my my one thing with with a player who's like a generational talent like Victor, you you go back and you look at like the top players of all time and just how much they improved their teams that first year, and it's like a bit of a trip that San Antonio is three and twenty, right? Like this is like they may have a worse record than the year before, and I'm not playing that on Victor, but it. It's a little crazy that, like, you know, you can tank, but you don't have to tank like this. Like, that that's my thing. Especially when there's, like, nobody coming up in this draft who's necessarily going to, like, be a huge turnaround for next year either. Yeah, I mean, you probably got four or five guys you can make an argument at number one right now. But if they did end up with that pick, 
Isaiah Collier, Victor Webanyama. Yeah, might be something. I like it could. I don't know. I I worry about Isaiah, man. I worry about him a little bit. Like just the the um the turnovers right now. Like he's he's really similar to Scoot in a lot of ways. Is he not? And Scoot's had a pretty rough go of it. Like that first little. It takes point guards a while to adjust to the NBA. Usually, like you know, they're not all like John Morant's coming in and uh, basically having the Grizz like almost in the playoff hunt right away. But um, yeah, it's uh, the, the Spurs need help. Like they, Victor needs help for sure. Yeah. They they don't have the second guy right now for Victor, like Daniel was saying. No, no, they don't. And I'll give Isaiah Collier the benefit of the doubt compared to Scoot Henderson. I do believe he's more polished at this point in time than Scoot Henderson was. Scoot Henderson was just unbelievably athletic. And I think Scoot Henderson will turn it around at some point. He's 25 games into his rookie season. Yeah. I don't think we should be counting out Scoot Henderson at all. But I am I'm not counting him out. Yeah. I'm not counting him out. I'm just saying that right now, when he's not playing and they see Malcolm Brogdon, they're like, our life is tougher right now with Malcolm Brogdon than it is with Scoot. And that's like the thing with bringing in somebody from next year's draft with Victor. It's, it may not turn around the team right away. That's, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. They, they need, they need more help than that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely think it'll be interesting to see what San Antonio does in the next few years to take advantage of having, who could potentially be a generational superstar and one of the greatest players that we've seen um, play. But uh, if you're here right now, we really appreciate you guys for listening. This was a long, very informative episode. So Nick, David, Michael, do you guys have anything to say before we, uh, before we hit the outro? Just wanted to shout out pro insight. Um, Yeah. Go look at our stuff there. We have a new podcast that just came out. Uh, talking about some of the top prospects in the NBA draft, had a PI Pulse article on that. Um, a lot of great content. D- Daniel definitely knows, uh, helped out at our Blueprint event in Las Vegas. Um, but yeah, just completely shout out my guys at Pro Insight. And thank you so much, uh, Practice Players Podcast, for having me on. And absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you coming on. It's definitely a lot of insights hopefully people listen and gain some value and we'll pin down all the pro insight stuff below go check out michael instagram websites whatever he's comfortable sharing down there but as always pp out